Good morning, everyone. If you would do me a quick favor and make sure your cell phones are turned to silent, that would be fantastic, and I would greatly appreciate it. Having said that, if your phone goes off in the middle of my sermon, we're going to have words later. That's what I'm talking about. That's right. Do whatever you need to do. Throw it out the window, you know. We are almost to the end of our series on the book of Acts, which I know you're thinking, already? After 20 weeks, we are almost to the end. It's true. Uh, Time flies. So next week will be our last lesson for realsies on the book of Acts. And we will look back at all that we have learned and seen from this story. Uh, But today we are going to look at the very last chapter in the book of Acts. And uh, Acts kind of ends on a little bit of a peculiar note. It's not really how you would imagine the story to end. Uh, It's sort of like watching a movie and you end up with just a bunch of people talking in the room without a lot of the issues resolved and it just ends. So that's kind of what the, the end of the book of Acts is like. But to a degree, it revolves around what on the surface seems like a simple question. And the question, and it's one that's actually really been asked throughout the book of Acts, is this one. Are you in or are you out? Now, that's a loaded question, isn't it? What does in mean? What does out mean? Now, if you hear that line in a movie or TV show, it usually means... That someone is having to make a choice about entering a potentially dangerous situation that has the potential for some sort of great reward. Are you in or are you out? A lot of times there's a heist involved uh, somewhere along the way. Maybe there's some breaking of the law. But this is usually an important moment in the story, whether it's explicit or not. This moment where this character that you're following has to make this decision that could change his or her life forever. So they have all of the information. Everything has been presented to them. They are in the process of weighing the risk of what they could potentially lose versus what they could potentially gain. I'm sure there's some, uh, you know, loss versus uh, profit chart somewhere. Um, And they find themselves at the point of having to choose. And it is at that moment where this question really rises to the surface. Are you in or are you out? Because in all of these movies, at some point, you have to make that choice. Are you going to go along with this? Are you going to participate? Or are you out of the plan altogether? Now, we may not understand it this way all the time, but the book of Acts is just such a story, minus the heist. God has done something radical through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are so numb to this fact because we have all been born into a time of Jesus where it is understood who he is and what he has done. And so one of the challenges for us as we have read through the book of Acts is to understand the newness of Jesus 
with all of these different people as it spreads throughout the world. God had done something radical and unexpected through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He forever changed the fate of humanity from one of slavery to sin and separation from God to one of forgiveness, love, salvation, and eternal life. But after that happens, God had to convince the world that it had actually happened. Through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, God spoke first to the disciples of Jesus in an effort to bring them along because God knew that he would need them to go out and spread the message. And so we see that right at the beginning of Acts. And they had long since accepted who Jesus was theoretically. But now they had to accept who Jesus was practically. It was no longer just an idea when Jesus says, I will go and give my life and be raised in three days. And they're like, oh, Jesus, you're precious. It's no longer, it's no longer a theory or an idea. It has all happened. And now they have to learn about what it means to live in this world after the resurrection of Jesus. As the disciples decided that they were in, the same question was asked of the Jews in Jerusalem and throughout the world. This is what God is doing. Are you in and or are you out? And something we have seen throughout the story of Acts, that while we think this should be an easy answer, I mean, you're in, duh, Jesus, yeah, To the Jews, however, this question of being in or out was anything but easy. We have seen them wrestle wrestle with Christianity and who Jesus is in a multitude of different ways, but these different ways are instructive for us because it's not just about this group of people a long time ago. It's about us now, and it's about people we know now. It's about experiences we've had before. So, First, they had to accept that Jesus really was the end game, the plan, the completion of all that God was doing in the world. And so the disciples, when they would have conversations with Jews that they wanted to convert to Christianity, they pointed out to them over and over that the Old Testament points to Jesus throughout, that the law, the prophets, all of it are pointing toward this thing that God was going to do. And this thing that God was going to do is Jesus. So let's say that they can accept that. Some do and some don't. Some do because they hear the truth and they see it in the word of God. Some don't because this is just too different than they thought than what they thought the ending would actually look like and they can't bring themselves to accept this kind of difference so but if they can accept that god is doing this there is a secondary question Can they accept that God wants all people to be saved, even people who are not Jewish? They had always been the chosen people of God. It was no small thing 
though, to accept that God was now choosing the entire world and not just them. It brought into question everything they understood about themselves and their relationship with God. And so we've seen, again, throughout the story of Acts that this was a difficult pill for them to swallow. It was hard for the disciples. Remember, Peter argued with a sheet from the sky about this entire thing. But they work through it. And then the Jewish Christians start to work through it. And it's so difficult that, that many Jewish Christians decided, well, okay, they can, Gentiles can become Christian, but they need to become more Jewish too. And so they wanted them to go through all of these different practices. And the, uh, the disciples helped them work through that. But so by the time Paul gets on the scene, he quickly became the ambassador to the Gentiles, and he followed the same procedure everywhere he went. So he would get into a new town, and he would go where? To the synagogue. Why? Because that's where the Jewish people are. And I think that's true, to worship as well. So... He would go there and he would preach to the Jews, laying out for them how Jesus fulfills all of God's plan. And we see the reaction being that some people believe and some don't. Some are willing to give up everything in their lives to follow him. Others are ready to give up Paul's life because they don't want to follow him. And only at that point, after he had shared with the Jews, would he then go out into the greater community and share the gospel with the Gentiles. And something that we need to note at the start of this discussion is just like in the synagogue, some people would believe and some wouldn't, the same was true with the Gentiles. Some would believe and some wouldn't. Because sometimes when we read these stories, we want to characterize the Jews as being the stubborn and obstinate people while everyone else is coming to Jesus. And that's an inaccurate reading of what's going on. Some people are, some people aren't, from either camp. So when we reach Acts 28, Paul has traveled all over the known world and had just gone on a very long journey to try to get to Rome. So if you have your Bibles today, open up to Acts 28. It will be on the screen behind me as well. <clears throat> Paul uh, was finally going to finish his journey to Rome. So they were on the island of Malta, living with the official there, and the weather calmed down. It became the, the time of year where they could travel safely. And so they get back on a boat, which I don't know about you, but I would not be anxious to get back on a boat again after everything he had been through. But they get back on a boat, and they start making their way to Rome. And they stop in different ports along the way. And at every port they stop, uh, Julius the centurion, who's in charge of this outfit, he lets uh, Paul go and connect with visitors. And so what ends up happening is that as Paul gets closer and closer to Rome, Jews and Jewish Christians alike are hearing that he's coming and they're starting to like trail him as he goes from harbor to harbor. So um, this, the account says uh, in verse 15, this is not on the screen, uh, the and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sign of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So he's had these people sort of trailing him as he goes up the coast. He gets to Rome. He's still kind of a prisoner, but what's weird is he's also kind of not. 
So he is waiting trial with Caesar, but he is allowed to rent his own space in Rome and to live there with a soldier there to guard him and make sure. I don't know what the soldier's purpose is there, actually, as you're going to see, Paul kind of does what he wants. Shocker, I know. So let's pick it up in verse 17. So he's there. People have been trailing him. He's had conversations with two people on the road. He's got his rental place with his token soldier. And here we are. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish brothers, or the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected. So I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Now, this is a bit of an interesting reaction between, or interaction between Paul and the leaders of the church of Rome. And this meeting happened because Paul called the meeting. So he invites them all to his rental place, uh, which again, why is the soldier there? I don't know. Um, and the leaders of Rome come and, and they visit him there. And he wanted to be very clear about something from the start. He wanted them to understand why he is there under these circumstances. Because he is on house arrest. He is there waiting trial for Rome. And so if you are a Roman or a Jew living in Rome, and this guy comes in who you have heard about, and you know that he's been doing a lot of different things, and he shows up on a prison boat under house arrest, what is your first question about him? <laughs> Well, you're clearly here for a reason like this. You know, you've done something wrong. You've, and so Paul wants to make sure that he gets all this out. Um, and, and the point, that, though, that he specifically wants to make to them is that he is there as a prisoner, even though Rome found him completely innocent. And he's there because the Jewish people insisted that he go through trial. And so here he is to go through trial, but this trial is only going to prove his innocence. So that's part of it, because he's a prisoner of Rome. So he explains that part. But he wants them to know something more important, and he gives a new angle on his innocence, something he hasn't really said before. And that is this. I am also innocent of saying anything bad about you, or any Jew, for that matter. He had no charge to make against his own people. 
He was a loyal Jew in every respect. Just as he was not guilty of any crime against the Jews, he was also innocent of wanting to do them harm in any way, shape, or form. He was falsely accused of being an enemy to the Jewish people. And so he would make no accusations against them. The only thing he wanted from Jewish people was for them to believe in Jesus. Now, why is this important? Think about for a moment the difficulty of what Paul is trying to do with the Jewish people. He is looking at all that God has done, and he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things, like we've pointed out. And so, therefore, he wants to share with his people, the people of God, that God is doing all these amazing things in the world. He wants them to know that. He wants them to understand that because Jesus is not a departure from their story. He is the finish, the finishing piece of all that God is doing. He is not separate from the Jewish people. He is a part of of, of all that they have ever been. And Jesus is not robbing them of their identity. He is fulfilling who God wants them to be. And so he wants them to know these things. But you know, he's a long way from home, and it's taken him a long time from the time he was uh, you know, accused by the Asian uh, Jewish people that were there in Jerusalem. It's taken him a long time from that point to where he has gotten here to Rome. So he doesn't know what they've heard or what they haven't heard. And his assumption is word gets around And therefore, and since these people were mad at me and they knew I was coming to Rome, what would they do? They're going to write a letter to you so that you know just how bad I am. So he wants to make clear one thing. If you have heard that I am telling people to believe in Jesus, then I have done that. If you have heard that I am trying to destroy the Jewish people, then you have heard the wrong thing because that's not what's happening he does not turn his back on his people and he hadn't been talking badly about them and he did not disrespect them all he wanted was for them to believe in jesus and this is the point that people are getting stuck on but you know as well as i do right like you challenge someone's like the way they see the world and, and maybe you're just trying to help them see something in a new way, but because you're challenging their understanding of the world, they feel like they are being attacked or threatened. And so immediately they become defensive about what you're trying to talk to them about. There are too many examples we could give right now that fall under this category. The Roman Jews then interestingly respond to him by saying, Uh, yeah, we haven't heard anything. But is that true? It doesn't seem like it because of verse 22. Uh, But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Oh yeah, we haven't heard anything bad about you from anyone else. But would you mind meeting with us to justify what you're saying? I mean, just in case you are saying something bad and maybe we heard it from somewhere. So Paul says, sure. Verse uh, 23. 
They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. Now listen to this. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. Acts closes. So this time, even more people showed up to meet with him, and he spent the entire day teaching them about Jesus. And I want you to hear this again because this is important. Teaching them about Jesus from where? The law and the prophets. You can learn about Jesus from the law and the prophets. Okay? All of it, the Old Testament, the New Testament, is telling the same story. And so Paul uses the law and the prophets, the the sacred texts of the Jews, to show them who Jesus was. And he spent the entire day doing it. And he gets to towards the end of this discussion, and what happens? Some people believe, some people don't. Those who believe start to argue with those who don't, or vice versa. And there's general feelings going on in the room. Um, and then he uses this passage from the book of Isaiah And it's a passage that Paul actually uses in some of his other writings, and he actually uses it in the book of Romans. It's an important passage that you've probably have heard before. Um, And it was written at a time uh, when God's people were far away from him, but the overwhelming hope of God was that things would change and they would be restored to him. So, The three organs here of perception in Jewish thinking are the ones that are highlighted. The eyes, which see, of course, the ears, which hear, and the heart, um, which in Hebrew thought was considered the organ of understanding and will. So the picture that Isaiah painted so long ago that Paul is applying to this situation is of a people who are taking in sensory perceptions but they are in no sense using them or understanding them in the way that they are supposed to be used or understood. Their ears heard the sounds, but the hearing was without understanding. Their eyes took in the sights, but without any insight because their hearts had become calloused. The message received by their eyes and ears was neither understood nor acted upon. But if it were, 
they would have done something in response to this message. If they had understood, they would have turned from their ways in repentance and received God's healing, and God would have restored them completely. And the quote from Isaiah refers to hearing three times. And its whole point is that hearing is not really hearing at all if the message isn't acted upon. So let's look at it this way. Paul is presenting Jesus. Remember, Jesus is now like a real thing. He's a resurrected Lord. And you have people in the room that don't want to talk about Jesus the resurrected Lord because Jesus the resurrected Lord means that you have to do something in response to this. Instead, what do they want to do? Let's talk about Jesus the idea. And let's argue the validity of who he could be or isn't or all those things. And as long as Jesus stays an idea, then they don't have to move on it. But but Paul describes this interaction, describes this as uh, you're seeing but not seeing. You're hearing but not hearing. If you want to keep Jesus as something that's out here, fine. But guess what? I'm going to go to some other folks, and they're not going to treat Jesus like an idea or a concept. They are going to see him as the resurrected Lord. And when they hear all of this, it becomes clear that they had not really heard him because they responded in disbelief and rejection. And so this quote, again, that was written so long ago in a completely different circumstance proves true again, that people when presented with the truth of God, some are believing, some are not believing, some are receiving and some are not receiving, some it should be so plain to them, but they just won't believe it. Because it's easier to keep Jesus as an idea. Church, it's easier to keep Jesus as an idea that you can like get out of the cabinet and then put back in the cabinet. That you can talk about when you feel like, but not talk about. And then apply all these other things that really help define who Jesus is. And then you can really pull him out and have a conversation about him. But he looks totally different now. One last question we have to ask before we wrap up. In this declaration that Paul was now going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will listen, was he rejecting the Jews entirely and was he saying that God is rejecting the Jewish people? There have been scholars that have read it this way, which is why I bring it up. All along, Luke has shown that there were some Jews who believed, even in the synagogues that rejected and persecuted Paul, there was always someone who would come out and believe in Jesus. And the same pattern of acceptance and rejection appears in this scene. In verse 30, Paul is said to have welcomed all who came to him, that he witnessed to both Jews and Gentiles. So there's no reason to believe that Jews had been excluded in this instance, but there is a hard truth that we have to understand. Paul and God are not excluding the Jewish people, but some of them are excluding themselves. Okay? Because they cannot accept Jesus. And they cannot accept that their definition of what all this was going to look like is not what it's going to look like. 
And they can't accept that Jerusalem is not going to be restored to the capital of the world. And they can't accept that their people are not going to be brought up. And instead, this gospel is saying that it's not about restoring one place. It's about restoring everyone. It's about healing coming to the entire world. That anyone who could hear about Jesus could say, I want him in my life. And they didn't think this because they hated everyone else. You understand? I mean, maybe some people did, but they couldn't get over it because what it changed about them. So what do we learn from this story? It's been the question I've asked every week. What we learn from this story is that the question that was asked throughout the book of Acts is the same question that is being asked today. Are you in or are you out? Are you a part of what God is doing? Or are you trying to shape all of this to yourself? Because the one thing I think we see and the one thing that Paul was saying at the end of this when he's like, if you don't want it, I'm going to take it to people who will is that one cannot be a casual follower of Jesus Christ. We have made, in today's place and time and world, we have made being a casual follower of Jesus normal. But in Paul's world, there is no such thing. You are either in or you are out. And there is no in-between. Because of this reason, Jesus is real, and he cannot kind of be your Lord and Savior. He can't, he can't kind of be that. He either is or he isn't. And if you think that Paul is being too harsh because, well, yeah, but God loves us, and Jesus loves us, and he accepts us as we are, and yes, all of those things are true parts of the gospel, but let's look at a couple of stories from Jesus from Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, which is not on the screen, but listen to what he says. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And don't forget the story of the banquet where the homeowner wants to uh, throw a banquet, a great celebration for his town, and he sends out invitations and people come back with just the lamest excuses. I bought a new ox, and I want to try it out. It's the ancient equivalent of I'm washing my hair. And so what does the homeowner do? Fine. Don't come. But what I want, he says to his servants, what I want you to do is to go out and bring everyone in. Everyone who is hungry, everyone who is homeless, Everyone who is not going to put up these stupid excuses, bring them in, and they can eat with me. Jesus has a very, 
strong answer to the question of, is there an in-between? And the answer is no. You are either in or you are out. Because it means something, you see, to follow Jesus. It means something. We don't particularly like these words that Jesus spoke, and we argue with them because they sound exclusionary, and Jesus was always drawing people to him, and if we tell people they have to leave their stuff right away, are we even willing to walk away without looking back? It's true that Jesus was always drawing people to him, and it's true that Jesus loves us as we are, and that God knows that we are flawed and make mistakes, but Jesus always wanted people to make a choice. You have to make a choice. You can, you're either in or you're out, and he wouldn't tolerate any sort of halfway choice. I mean, get this, though. He worked with people through all of the baggage and stuff that they had going on or the questions they had or what they did or didn't understand, but at some point, they had to make a choice because there is no middle option between being in or out. The second thing we see, and I'm not going to say much about this, but It's astounding to me that Jesus loves us as much as he does and is as patient with us as he is because we pick and pull at what God wants us to do because it makes us uncomfortable. It would be like someone handing you a sculpture, an artist handing you a sculpture that is finished and ready to go. And you take a look at it and change it. Oh, that edge is too hard. Oh, that piece shouldn't be there. Oh, they shouldn't have that look in their eye. We pick and pull at what God wants us to do because what God wants us to do and what he's asking from us makes us uncomfortable. He is asking so much. And sometimes we forget how much he is giving when we focus on the asking. It's also clear that everyone has to go through the same process. They have to hear the gospel, and the gospel is so big and so overpowering that some people will respond to it because they see it as it is, while others will reject it outright because it is too much. Some people will, some people won't. Some people will accept it, and some people won't, and they won't accept it for a myriad of different reasons. But let's get back to that passage from Isaiah, because that passage from Isaiah tells us something important. There are people with eyes who will not hear. There are people with, or eyes that will not see, rather, ears that will not hear, hearts that will not accept it. And God, in this passage from Isaiah, is looking down at his people who know him and should know better and have been with him forever, and they are just turning from him and pretending like he's not there. But the end result of this passage is that what God wants the most is for them to be restored. He doesn't want to punish them because uh, they can't see or can't hear. Instead, he's like, if they would just see... They could turn around and I could show my love to them. If they would just hear, they could stop this foolishness. 
and come back to me and I would accept them. Are you in or are you out? It's a difficult question. It really is. And frankly, it's a question that we should be asking ourselves every single day. Because every single day we have choices to make. Some of them reflect Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and some of them don't. But the thing that sets this question apart when it's coming from Jesus is that when Jesus asks us if we are in, he is asking us, do you want to participate, be a part of God loving, redeeming, and restoring the world? You want to be a part of that? Because you can. You can be a part of that. And if you're out, it means you're out. It means you don't. We can't ever forget, church, that the power of the gospel is what God is doing in us. That the power of the gospel is what God is offering us. That the power of the gospel is salvation for the world. And it does ask a lot. But what it gives overpowers what it asks. And the people who see and hear know that that what the gospel gives is far greater than anything it could ask. Amen? Amen. We are going to take communion together. And we're going to look at communion in a slightly different way because if the question is, are you in or are you out, communion and the sacrifice of Jesus is God's overwhelming statement that he is in for us because you know god could have been in or out he could have washed his hands of us a long time ago but the sacrifice of jesus remarkably says that god is in for us that he's not giving up that he will not give up that anyone who can see or hear or know in their hearts can turn and be restored. So we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the turning point for us. And while we might spend the rest of our lives wrestling with whether we're in or out and what that means, God definitively for all time says, I am in for you.